Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. And for this week's show, we'll be looking at uh, a roundup of winter testing that's taken place between Valencia, Jerez and Sepang. I'm Stephen English and joining me today, as usual, David Emmett. And uh, David, we've got a lot to get through this week. Uh, yeah, fair amount. I mean, it's been, uh, it's been, I mean, it's December now, so nobody's testing anymore, but it's, it's been fairly busy the past uh, few weeks with uh, people hooning around tracks and, and preparing for 2018. Well, you say nobody's testing, Dave, in, in December, but there is a big KTM test coming up as well at Horath uh, where Mikacalio could potentially be using a, quite a radical bike in the next week or two. So we'll have to keep our eyes peeled on that. But when we look at what we've seen so far, there was definitely a few storylines from the three tests that we have seen. And uh, what was the big takeaway for you from it? The big takeaway for me was just how fast the Honda was, I think. Honda were probably the only uh, manufacturer who bought was what is probably going to be their 2018 bike. They bought it to uh, the Valencia test and uh, Mark Marquez and Danny Pedrosa rode it there, uh, as well as Cal Crutchlow. And then they took it to uh, uh, the Jerez test as well and uh, really put uh, Cal Crutchlow through his uh, through his paces because obviously, you know, Cal's on an, uh, on an HRC contract now and um, he's having to, uh, to work hard for his money. Yeah, and of course, Honda did lead the way, David, in two of those test days as well with Marquez at Valencia and Crutchlow on day two at Jerez. Yeah, well, exactly, and it, not just um, it, it's not just the the speed; it was just the consistency, especially looking at Crutchlow's times in um, uh, in Jerez. Uh, Normally, when you look at uh, Crutchlow's times in, in practice, they're a bit all over the place. He has sort of a couple of fast laps, and then a couple of slow laps, and a couple of fast laps. But um, uh, he was doing a lot more sort of uh, race simulations and that sort of thing at Jerez. Um, which was uh, very interesting, and the I mean the thing that really struck me was after the test, um, uh, Mark uh, Marquez said basically the bike felt pretty much. I mean, he said normally when they get on the bike for the first time, it's a good, it's a bit of a mess, it's a bit of shambles. They've got to set the electronics up, and um, they've still got a lot of work to do. But this time, uh, it, it was all within the parameters, as he put it. So that to me suggests that the you know because once again they've changed the engine a bit. Uh, that engine is uh, is probably much closer to being ready than uh, than previously, so that was good. They weren't so happy about the um, uh, about the chassis. The, the chassis still needs a lot of work. To me, it really looks like Honda are uh, in good shape for uh, for the start of next year. Yeah, and uh, just looking at the bike from trackside as well, Dave, it was pretty clear just the difference between the Valencia race weekend and what we saw in those tests as well. The riders all feeling that little bit more confidence in it as well. And that's really been the one thing that uh, Honda's needed to make that step with, just to make it where other riders are able to use it. Yeah, I mean, it was also sort of interesting to see the rookies get on the bike. Um, and to an extent, also, the um, uh, we saw Tito Rabat and Jack Miller get off of the Honda and onto a Ducati, and they were both immediately quicker on the uh, on the Ducati, which suggests that that bike is a lot easier to to uh, to you know get at least get going on. Obviously, that last sort of you know one tenth of a percent is is always going to be really difficult to find. But um, uh, they were they were immediately a lot more comfortable. So the the old bike was really quite difficult to, to ride, and even you saw the rookies Nakagami um, and Morbidelli uh, they struggle a little bit at Valencia, um, and even the first day in um, 
in in Jerez, they took a little bit of time again up to speed, but they were soon sort of sort of slowly slowly improving. So um, I think things are looking a little bit better this year for, for or next year for Honda than they than they have been in the past. And uh, well, it might be looking a little bit better for Honda. It's still big uncertainty about what's going to happen with Yamaha as well, Dave. They did have a, a private test at Sepang as well after the Jerez test, where Honda and Ducati and Aprilia were present. Yeah, exactly. I saw a few sort of um, uh, spy, uh, well, spy shots. Basically, um, uh, uh, I think some of the uh, people who were drafted into Marshall at the private test uh, were wandering up and down pit lane, and there were an awful lot of uh, and posting stuff on Instagram. And there were an awful lot of bikes in um, uh, in the Yamaha garages. I think uh, both uh, Vinales and Rossi had, uh, you know, four bikes in each garage, which suggests they had an awful lot of uh, an awful lot of work to do. At Valencia, the um, uh, Rossi, at least Valentino Rossi tried a new engine. I don't know about uh, about Vinales because he didn't speak to us about it. But uh, Rossi quite liked the new engine. But they're they're still in a, a real state of confusion with the chassis. Joanne Zarco didn't make it. It didn't help by saying that he really really loved the 2017 chassis when he tried it at Valencia. Um, said it would made it something like 30 percent easier to uh, to actually ride the bike. And sort of you know comments like that aren't making it any easier to develop the to develop the bike do you think david after a year now with vinales on the bike he's obviously had two years with suzuki as well on a MotoGP gp bike what do you think are the the questions that have to be asked about his feedback now then as well like he is one of those incredibly talented riders is he one of those guys that can just jump on a bike and figure ways around it and not really have to have that technical insight uh, well i think the thing is and it, it, to an extent, it was a point which um, uh, which Rossi made uh, during the uh, during the season when uh, when Vinales was faster than uh, faster than Rossi at the, at the beginning. Uh, you know, Vinales was coming off a Suzuki, so he was comparing everything with the with the Suzuki and trying to ride it like a Suzuki, and to an extent, getting an awful lot out of the bike riding it like a uh, uh, like a Suzuki. But the danger is that to actually get that last little sort of tenth of percent uh, out again, um, you can't. You have to stop riding it like a Suzuki and start riding it like a Yamaha, and um, that's where it sort of all suddenly went a little bit, uh, a little bit pear shaped, really. So I, I think it's going to be much more instructive seeing uh, seeing what happens in you know 2018. That I think is the proof of the pudding in terms of Vinales feedback. Um, but they really, they really need Vinales and Rossi to get on the same page in terms of what they want from the bike, and that's that. That has also been a little bit of a uh, a problem, I think, and especially now with the, with with Zarco. I mean, the thing is, Zarco's been incredibly quick, and you know, Zarco said he loved the uh, he loved the 2017 bike, which just sort of it, it muddies the water even more about who's uh, who's quick and who isn't and who's right and uh, uh, and all the rest of it. So. Yeah, I mean, the, the Yamaha are in a bit of a, a, a tough spot, but they obviously, you know, they've got a lot of work to do. One team that uh, had a lot of work to do, David, early in the winter, but or early, early in the season was KTM, but they obviously have made some pretty significant strides forward and uh, really they're the model for what you need to do to develop a bike from that back end of the grid and just be able to make that progress the whole way through and show really what can be achieved in GP at the minute. Yeah, I mean, what KTM has done I mean, has been absolutely astounding quite frankly i mean they went from at uh, in qatar they were it was almost embarrassing they were three seconds a lap slower than everyone else they finished a long way back they weren't even in touch uh with the back markers 
Uh, by the time they got to, well, sort of, I suppose, really the the last three quarters of the season, they were, um, or two, the last two thirds of the season, they were basic, you know, battling for top tens. There's someone in KTM told me they had ha- been through something. What was it? I think eighteen iterations of the chassis in fourteen races through the uh, through the winter and then all the way up to the uh, uh, all the way up to the racing. So that was. That's a real sign of just how much work they've had. They, they've had to do now. Each of those iterations is just a, you know, it's like a small change. One of the benefits of the uh, of the trellis frame is the fact that you can uh, just by changing the way that the parts are connected and changing the stiffness of some of the the little steel tubes, if you like. By modifying those, you can actually create you you can ch- easily change stiffness and and modify the behaviour of the bike. So um, I think they've been fiddling around with that a lot. You can also all, almost actually do it on site if you've got um, a capable welder and enough uh, enough raw material. But yeah, they they made a lot of um, they made a lot of uh, a lot of progress. Obviously, the the biggest progress they made was switching from the uh, uh, from the screamers to the Big Bang. And uh, Mika Calio has got, uh, as you said, Mika Calio has got a big test um, with a new engine. That's supposed to be again. It's going to be a different configuration, but we don't know anything more than it's going to be a a, a different uh, uh, a different configuration. So we shall have to wait and see. What well, we'll get our first look at that in uh, in Sepang. Bradley Smith and Paulus Bagger were mostly just going through all of the stuff which they'd sort of had one go on during the season and not really been um, uh, had time to uh, test properly uh, through there, so they could go back and do the rest of it. Yeah, because that was one of the things, David, when we talked to Paul and Brad over the course of particularly the Hareth test, whenever there's only a handful of journalists around, we do get a bit more freedom to ask as many questions as we want and ask what we want. And uh, one thing that both of those writers did say was that uh, just that rate of development through the season, it's exciting for them, but it's also a big challenge for them. It's big difficulty just to make sure that you're giving the accurate feedback at the right time about that part because you could easily end up in a situation where something that didn't work in May might suddenly make a big difference now. Yeah, exactly. This is something that actually happened in the uh, period when uh, Valentino Rossi was at Ducati. They were trying so hard to fix the bike that they were literally, you know, they're bringing boxes and boxes of stuff every single weekend. And it just never got tested. Um, and it never got tested properly because there were just too many parts. And uh, again, the KTM were bringing new stuff every single uh, every single weekend, and you can go out try something for two or three laps, get a general idea of whether it's uh, whether it works or not. But then there are so many different uh, pieces, so many different ways that the parts of the bike interact. Um, if you change the electronics, then that might also change the uh, change the behaviour of the bike, and that might suddenly make uh, a different linkage or a different swing arm or a different uh, triple clamp or something like that work a little bit differently, work a little bit better, or work a little bit worse. And I think actually just going through and, get, and, and picking out all the stuff which really does work and double checking everything is a is a really valuable was a really valuable use of their time. And uh, David, one uh, manufacturer that does have to make some steps forward in terms of what they did this year bit like KTM but slightly different is Aprilia they had a lot of very positive results through the season particularly with Alicia Spagaro but uh, it was a difficult introduction to the bike for Scott Redding at the Valencia test yeah I think Scott Redding was a little bit taken aback at how differently um, the bike behaves than he expected what was surprising that was uh, he, he was absolutely full of praise for Alicia Spargaro and the way that uh, uh, Alicia's been riding the bike. Um, it says a lot of the results which came from that bike had been 
just down to uh, Aleish willing to willing to take the risks. And if you if you look at um, his season, then you can totally see that. I mean, he fell off lots and lots of times just because he was pushing so hard. You know, he, he just desperately wanted a uh, desperate desperately wanted a result, and so he was pushing. Really, has spent a lot of time. Uh, well, it, it started off as a, as a very light bike, and they started adding uh, some weight to it. They've been sort of playing around with the weight a little bit to try and change the behavior of the bike the bike is really quite uh, uh, front end heavy so yeah i i think that that front end thing that was what um uh, miller liked about the bike but it, oh sorry miller uh, that's what uh, that's what scott redding uh, liked about the bike but he was a bit surprised yeah, how difficult it was to actually get sort of real performance out of the bike and it, that showed to an extent in his um uh, in his results talked to scott as well dave the one thing he did say was that uh, just in terms of the aggressiveness of the engine as well really was one of those big surprising factors for him and just trying to understand how to get uh, anything from the bike really did seem like it was going to be a challenge and it was interesting to talk to scott just because in the past whenever he jumped on a motor gp bike initially he was very positive about the open honda he was positive about jumping on to the the factory honda then as well as it was with the or with uh, mark vds he was really positive when he jumped onto the Pramac bike. This is the first time where we've seen him change bikes and not really have that positive attitude. Also, because I think for the first time he's actually sort of gone backwards, if you like, because the you know he was even though he was on a, a GP16 this uh, this year, the GP16 wasn't wasn't a bad bike. It it had certain limitations. It was a lot easier to ride. It was a lot easier to ride than the, than the Honda that he'd been on before, and so it was easier to be competitive. But um, this looking at the results of the Aprilia through the, through the season, it's been obvious that um, he was uh, uh, that the bike was was not as good as the Ducati, and he had to. He, he, I think he has to sort of you know readjust his mind to that. The good point for Scott is that he's on the same bike as uh, as Alessio Spargo, which wasn't the case for Sam Lowe's for all of the all of the season. That should also help with uh, development. Definitely one of the big things that did hold back Aprilia quite a bit over the course of this year was just having those two riders on such different bikes as well. And we saw it all the way through, really, especially at the end of the season, it was just creating even bigger margins between Aspagaro and his teammate. But uh, do you think, David, looking at what Aprilia have been able to achieve with Aleish, that uh, Scott should be confident of uh, once he's able to find a way of riding that bike, that we should be able to see another manufacturer with two bikes up inside that top 10? One of the problems, of course, is that um, uh, every time a manufacturer becomes more competitive, it gets more difficult to get into the top 10 because it means there's more bikes trying to get into the top 10. Uh, sheer weight of numbers is against it. But, yeah, I mean, they, they Aprilia are not really all that far off. I mean, the bike's got decent top speed. They, they struggle a lot with top speed. Their big problem right now is um, acceleration off the bottom. It's still the, the the bike is still too aggressive off the bottom. Um, it doesn't really have you know the the sort of like smooth and powerful torque which which the Ducati had, um, and that's really what they uh, what they have to work on. It's what they've been working on all year. That'll really they can do a little bit with electronics, but it really needs some some engine mods to get it to a little bit to a little bit closer. Um, so we shall. Well, yeah, we shall see if they've made another step in uh, in Aprilia. But at least with two experienced riders, I, I think it was it was more difficult for Aprilia the, the, in 2017 because they had a rookie and an experienced rider and and two new riders. So they lost a lot of um, uh, they lost a lot of sort of development time, development input, and having two experienced riders on the bike will will make a difference. And Alessio Spargo has basically said, you know, next year is do or die for uh, for Aprilia. They have to. 
they really have to make the step to making it competitive. So um, uh, it's not far off, but that that last little bit is is always the most expensive and the most difficult. You might have wrote something on it fairly recently, David. It, it might have just been your piece on Jonathan Ray and Kawasaki, just where it was a case of those uh, incremental steps come at uh, and an exponential price. That's exactly it. It's that last. Uh, it's easy to find. You know, when you're three seconds back. In fact, you saw it with KTM. You know, uh, they went from being three seconds back to being one second back in almost no time at all. Um, uh, going from one second back to half a second back is going to take them. You know, it, it took them uh, just as long. Uh, and going from being sort of half a second back to being uh, three tenths back is going to take them maybe all of next year. It's just um, th- that refinement is because you you have to get things more and more precisely right, and that's what makes it so very difficult. Just uh, when we look at uh, what steps need to be taken, David, for the likes of KTM, Aprilia, and uh, Yamaha, when you look at uh, winter testing as a whole, like you go, you'll go to the Sepang test, there'll be uh, another test in. Qatar and one in Thailand as well. Just for the teams, when you look at the time time scale that they have, how big of a challenge is it just to be able to make these steps over the course of the winter? Uh, Well, I mean, to an extent, the winter break actually helps because it gives factories time to uh, work through all the stuff which they've collected. Um, If you are testing sort of every two weeks, then uh, quite often you don't have sufficient time to go through the data and sort of, you know, properly, fully analyse it. Uh, before it's time to roll out the next, uh, you know, you know, uh, before you get a new lot of data uh, uh, coming in that you've got to check. So for the engineers, it actually does help having having all that. Uh, again, for Yamaha, um, it rained. Uh, the, the conditions were very mixed at private Sepang tests, and mixed condition, especially the wet, has been one of their really big problems. So uh, I think the fact that uh, that it rained there, they got they got all conditions. It was very wet to sort of um, sketchy conditions to um, to quite dry. Uh, I think that helped them uh, a lot because they will have lots of data which they can actually use to make the uh, uh, to make the bike better. So the Sepang test, David, it definitely would have helped Yamaha. The Hareth tests helping Aprilia and KTM, but uh, probably just to help us, David, we need to take a short break here on the Paddock Pass podcast. David Emmett here. Just a quick reminder: if you're listening to this show on iTunes. Please remember to leave us a review and rate us, as it really helps other fans find the show. Thanks a lot. Bye. So welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. And David, we've still got uh, to talk about Ducati for uh, the winter testing program. And uh, we saw Ducati in action at uh, the recent Hareth test as well as Valencia, and they had factory bikes, they had Avintia, they had Pramac. So there really was a lot of effort going into the Jerez test this year from Ducati once again. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the Jerez test is a really important test for them because, again, I think what they like to do is uh, collect as much data before the winter, uh, take it back to uh, Borgo Panigale and then uh, work through it and sort it all out to bring their new bike to Sepang. Uh, despite saying that they've got, you know, they were not bringing their new bike, the or the, they kept telling us they didn't have a new bike. But despite that, there were some reasonably significant changes visible. Though I think there was a, they had a new chassis and they had a new seat unit and one or two other 
other bits and pieces. So both Dovi and uh, and Lorenzo said that basically the the difference was or what they were doing was just going through sort of small changes to 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 find the detail for the for the big change which is coming over the uh, uh, over the winter. And the one thing which they're still pursuing, they're still trying to change is um, you know long corners is what they call the turning problem, which is basically it just it takes a, a lot of effort to keep the bike through long sweeping corners um which is why they were just so absolutely terrible in um in Phillip Island this year arguably Philip Phillip Island sort of changed the uh, changed the momentum of the of the championship and and helped uh, help Dovi lose that championship but um uh, it, it's the one area which they really need a lot of uh, a lot of work on and they spent an awful lot of time working working on that as well just like that that point that you made just really does encapsulate what we've got on the grid at the moment where we've got so many bikes that are capable of setting pretty much the same lap time but they all have to do it in very different ways and that's one of the key reasons why we've ended up having such great racing over the last couple of years oh yeah absolutely i mean you know the donor have got the rules package right they've um when i first started doing this professionally um then bikes were disappearing off the grid every season and uh, basically you knew uh, after qualifying you knew who's going to win and who's going to finish second and who's going to finish third um because that was the way that they uh, that they finished in qualifying but uh, the the rules package is such that it's now um affordable for the smaller factories to be able to compete you know they don't have to spend they don't have to compete with with the might of Honda's software engineering um department which uh, basically used to be able to give them um it, it made their very it made Honda's power advantage usable uh, now everyone the Honda can't sort of you know hack their way around the uh, the, the limitations of the engine using using very very clever uh, software strategies so that that has made a big difference in terms of cost for the smaller factories and made it you know also, it's put a lot more control back in the riders' in the riders' hands. I mean, you see it with Joan Zarco, who's come up from Moto Two, and in Moto Two, what he really learned was to be really, really smooth with the throttle and to save his tyres for the second half of the uh, of the race. He did that especially in his final year in uh, in Moto Two, and that's made a huge difference in terms of you know just basic rider input. You know, riders matter more because they have to save their tyres for the end of the race. They can they can make a difference with their riding, which we saw several times this year with Dovi I mean if you saw if you remember the Barcelona race that was all about um, uh, that was all Dovi won that just by saving his tyres and making sure that he had enough uh, for the end of the race where everyone else sort of burned themselves out just to give a, a bit of a shameless plug there as well just on the the back of what you're saying about Zarco Neil Morrison does have a, a really good piece in this week's on track off road as well just talking about Zarco through the course of the season and yeah. uh, really I think when we go through our, our end of season recap shows, I don't think there's going to be too much competition for the biggest surprise of the year, given what we saw from Zarco. But that piece in On Track Off Road, definitely worth having a read of. Well, yes, you should always read everything which uh, which Neil writes because it's always uh, it's always fascinating. But yeah, I mean, re- seriously, Zarco has just been so impressive and so intelligent and again i think this is this, this puts uh, yamaha in a bit of quandary because if they start listening to his input uh, then that changes things for the for the factory boys as well and it's, it's quite clear that he's fast enough to compete um but you know if he's pulling the, the direction of the bike the development direction of the bike 
in a different direction to uh, Rossi and to Vinales, then it, it just makes their job that much more complicated. Could well get a little bit more complicated for Ducati as well, David. As you mentioned, they were uh, still having some of those same problems with the new bike. We did get talking to Petrucci at the uh, Jerez test, but we weren't allowed to talk to Lorenzo and, and Davi on a daily basis. But uh, from what Petrucci was saying about the 2018 bike, he only had limited running on it, but uh, he seemed pretty positive about it. Yeah, I mean, uh, we spoke to him at lunchtime, but then um, just as he'd been the bike, or just as he had a big crash before he was supposed to go out on the new bike, and then we didn't really get a uh, a lot of chance to talk to him uh, after after he'd been out on the on the new bike. But he seemed competitive on it, and um, uh, and uh, seemed pretty quick. And uh, again, we saw Dovizioso was fastest overall, and uh, and Jerez Lorenzo was third behind Crutchlow. Um, uh, that looks very promising. It shows that they're definitely working uh, working in the right direction. Dave, the one other thing that we get to see about uh, the direction that Ducati's taking is just what we've seen from Tito Rabat and Jack Miller when they've jumped onto the bike as well. Both riders being that. Uh, Pretty uh, glowing in their praise of the bike, really. Yeah, I mean, Tito Rabat uh, was certainly the biggest surprise. Um, overall, he was seventh fastest at the Jerez test, which is really impressive. It's absolutely not where, you were, um, where you'd expect Tito to be. Um, uh, Jack too. Jack was a lot quicker on the uh, uh, on the Ducati than he was with from the Honda. He was certainly a lot more comfortable. He liked he liked the bike a lot more. Currently, one of my uh, on my to do list is to uh, go through and compare uh, Rabat's and Miller's times at the Valencia test with their uh, times set during the during uh, you know practice and qualifying during, uh, and the race uh, on the Honda just to you know get a sense of how much easier it is to run the bike but yeah they were both comfortable they were both uh, they were both quick it seemed like miller was um, uh, a lot faster the first uh, on the uh, valencia than he was at uh, jerez i mean he was uh, you know fourth fastest on the first day in um, at valencia uh, eighth uh, eighth fastest on the on the second day um but he was only 11th quickest um, of the motor gp riders at uh, jerez so clearly he has uh, he's still got to figure a few things out they uh, paid with the aerodynamic package. I think um, uh, Tito really liked it. Jack was sort of, you know, sort of, well, I think he was less uh, uh, less decided about it. But he said, you know, you could you could definitely feel the difference. But it's, it, I think Jack Miller and Tito are about are really going to be two riders to watch for, uh, uh, for 2018 because I think we'll learn a lot about, uh, you know, just, just how good they are, especially after so many people, including myself, wrote Tito Rabat off um, uh, while he was on the Honda. It's easy to forget just how good Tito was on a Moto2 bike as well. And if he's able to get enough experience on a MotoGP bike, you'd have to think he'd be capable of showing once again that he's not uh, the rider that we saw on the Honda for the last couple of years. He's definitely got a lot of potential to be able to get some decent results. And maybe with Avintia, he'll be able to get that because, David, what we've seen from Ducati is they are one of the manufacturers more willing to uh, just give quality machinery to each their satellite operations and, more importantly, the support of engineers. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that... To me, that's probably the biggest uh, uh, the biggest difference. The biggest difference is the number of people in Ducati shirts in those uh, in those garages rather than um, than the machinery. Because it, I mean, going fast, it's about the rider, it's about the team, but it's also about sort of understanding the bike. And Ducati really do put a lot of effort into helping their satellite teams go quick. So yeah, I mean, even Avincia, which is a relatively poorly um, a poorly funded team, it doesn't have you know they're, 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 
they don't have a vast amount of money, but they still have there. There are still lots of people in Ducati shirts, sort of walking in and out of that garage, and um, and you can see it actually makes a, it actually makes a difference. It, it, you know, even last year, Carol uh, Abraham and uh, and Loris Baz on those older bikes. They had, they still have the support of Ducati, and they still uh, uh, they had some pretty. From time to time, they would have some pretty good, uh, pretty good results. Away from testing now, but just to something that you did during the test, just looking at uh, some one guy that did have a lot of good results on the Ducati, Andrea Davizioso. You had a chance to sit down with Davi and have a chat to him just about what he's gone through in the last couple of years. Yeah, I mean, it was a fascinating interview. He's just a fascinating guy, really. He's just a fascinating rider i sat down for about 15 minutes with him um uh was lucky to be given uh, that sort of uh, that sort of access to him and he talked about the things which he's changed in his life it was almost a fr- it's quite a frustrating conversation because he was telling me sort of a lot but not quite everything and it just made you really really curious to find out the last sort of few details but he, he basically talked about um how he'd just concentrated on his relationships with you know the the people in his life the people around him uh, uh concentrating on his on his relationships with the people inside the team getting that better and stopped worrying about uh you know sort of the trivial details which can so easily distract people and which distracted him in the past that's definitely been uh, been the, the biggest rider there was an interesting question i, I talked about um if he thought this um uh, this change would also help him when he decides to retire because you know retiring for riders can be can be really difficult because they don't know what to do with themselves i made the example of valentino rossi because you know rossi is still racing he's still doing everything to race and um uh, because he loves racing and doesn't really know what to do, what else he would do and David Chiosa sort of laughed and said, "Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to have that problem. He's uh, when he decides to re- when he decides to retire, he'll be able to retire." So, um, yeah, I, it was a it was a really really interesting uh, thing. Also, I asked him if he was disappointed. He said, "No, he wasn't disappointed. He's more pleased with what he actually managed to achieve this year because he was much further. He did much better than he expected. Again, he took plenty of time to have a go at, uh, at journalists for writing him off earlier after um, uh, um, after having sort of a difficult season uh, or having difficult seasons previously. Um, and he was pleased to be able to rub everyone's noses. In it, uh, I think so. Um, yeah, it was. A, it was a. It was a very. Uh, it was a very interesting uh, uh, conversation. You mentioned Rossi there as well, Dave, and uh, there was some talk just about uh, what Rossi will end up doing. And we saw in this week's MCN Simon Patterson writing that uh, it looks like you know Rossi has said that uh, he'll race for ten years, but he might well move into car racing pretty soon. But uh, you'd be surprised if uh, we didn't see Rossi sign a new contract with Yamaha next year. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's going to race on. He's going to race motorcycles for as long as he believes that he can be competitive racing motorcycles. And the thing that I mean, the fact is, he he won a race last year. Um, he was he you know he got on the podium last year. Um, he felt he could have competed for the championship if the bike hadn't let him down. And it was obviously that the bike did let him down because you know you saw Vinales win three of the first what four or five races. Uh, four races, I think, and then just the whole thing sort of fell apart for Yamaha. So um, uh, he believes in his own mind that he can be competitive, and as, for as long as he believes he can be competitive, he's going to be racing a motorcycle. I can see him going off and racing cars. I think he still has, sort of like has things that he wants to do. But you can race a car when you're forty-five, forty-six. Uh, there's no reason. Um, 
it it's not as demanding physically demanding it's not as demanding on the body it, you know it, it places different demands on the body but yeah i i think he's going to be uh, i think he definitely signs on for at least one more season it wouldn't surprise me if he signs on for two more seasons I was wonder the 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 rumors that we hear about rossi going to car racing he's not going to be able to race at a level that's going to be anything similar to motor gp he's going to be racing in national level maybe do some international races and things like that. But he's never going to be racing for a world championship. So for him, surely that's going to be one of the key things as well. It'll be good fun to go out and race cars whenever he finishes racing bikes, but definitely just that drive and the hunger just to keep winning at a high level is what's going to keep him in MotoGP. If you look at uh, what we've seen the last few years, David, just in the time where we've been in the paddock, we've seen Rossi just basically transform how he manages to approach his job, approach his race weekends, and his training away from the track. And it'd be a big surprise to see him suddenly just decide to put that focus into cars. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the the other thing is, if he did switch to cars, he'd have to, he would obviously take the same approach um, just because that's how he is. Yeah, he, he races to win. Like a lot of racers, they, they, you know, they're not messing about. They don't, they don't, it's not really about the, you know, operating the vehicle. It's about uh, humiliating other people by beating them. If you can't get that feeling, that taste, of the, it, uh, I remember, I think last year or something, I, uh, after he won it uh, at Aston, it had been a long time since he'd won. He, you know, he talked, he spoke about the, that taste of victory, the taste of victory that lasts for 45, you know, three, four hours after, uh, after a race. And then it's, uh, and then it's back again. But to give up so much of your life, just to pursue those single moments of success it's an incredible sacrifice and you, you and you only manage it by uh by dedicating yourself to succeeding so as you say i mean you know where would rossi go racing cars maybe le mans i think he's spoken about wanting to race in le mans um he's a uh, he's a decent rally driver but i mean you know more about cars than me Steve, so where do you think, uh, where where do you see Valentino Rossi uh, racing? If he had to jump to F1 when he had the opportunities, he would have been able to at least have scratched that itch and seen what he could do. That was 10, 11, 12 years ago when that opportunity was coming yep. up. So now the only options he's going to have is to race sports cars. If he goes to race sports cars, Toyota, they're not going to put him in an LMP1 car. It's going to be Ferrari putting him in a GT3 car. You know, it's going to be into one of the, one of the decent private amateur teams. It's not going to be maybe an AF course or something like that, where it's a decent solid team that can put together a world championship program in the GT class. But that's not the LMP class. It'd be like going into racing Model 3 or something like that. You know, there'd be that big of a performance difference between a GT car and an LMP1 car. And uh, for Rossi, rallying, he's good in a rally car. He's shown that in the Monza rally. He shows that he's got good handling abilities. He's got good driving skills. But does he have the ability to listen to pace notes, to understand what what's coming around the corner, to visualize that? Kimi Raikkonen couldn't do that. That's why Kimi Raikkonen was a bad rally driver. He had all the speed in the world, but he couldn't translate it onto a rally stage. You know, when you look at Rossi, you'd have to say it's a very big challenge for any rider, any driver to go from racing short circuits where it's just you trying to understand the track to then being told where to go. And that'd be one of the big challenges for him if he decided to go into rallying. At this stage, I don't really see where he goes if he decides to go racing cars, where he'll be able to get enjoyment, success, and uh, get that, that kind of fulfillment that he can get from racing MotoGP, 
from even in fairness just uh, having his teams come through the rider academy come through those kind of things do give him a lot of enjoyment as well and maybe if he decided to move into do some sort of car racing they'd be put on the back burner is that something he wants i think it's all going to come down to motivation for him but i'd still be very surprised if he's got anything like the motivation that he has for MotoGP if he goes into another discipline I think it's a really good point about actually listening to other riders because or listening to to your co-pilot you know uh, or to your navigator when you're uh, as a rally driver or even um, you know driving in endurance or whatever there's a lot more communication backwards and forwards it's much more of a, of a team effort than the motorcycle racing motorcycle racing is it, it, I mean it's a team effort right up until the moment that the that, that the lights go out and they all tear off the line and from then on it really is just uh, completely individual uh, and even though we have dashboard messages mapping and we have it, uh, Dave, mapping mess- it, the team effort <laughs> yeah well that shows that um that entire uh, that entire episode shows you the value the, or how much stock uh, or how much notice uh, riders take of um, uh, of team orders or of their team once the you know once the flag drops once they get going that's it they they are they're all on their own uh, so i think it does become a lot more uh, a lot more difficult it'd be interesting also to see if rossi fancied it having a crack at the dakar i think that would be uh, uh, on i think if he does it'd be on four wheels not two wheels because on two wheels it's uh, absolutely lethal um, uh, I think given his yeah. injuries just out motocrossing this year Dave yes. the Dakar could be <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah 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 exactly yeah, exactly falling off dirt bikes it's not a uh, it, it, he's he's had a little bit of bad luck that way this year so um, uh, no I can I can see him going into going off and doing something but yeah I think I think also his life is in the paddock you know his, uh, his, his social life is in the paddock and you, you see that with a lot of people inside the paddock they become I always like to joke there's only one way um well the the only way out of the MotoGP paddock is um you know feet first between six planks of wood it's not an easy place to leave it's not an easy place to actually leave and and uh leave behind you saw that with uh, uh Nakamoto Shohei Nakamoto boss of HRC he was forced to retire because he reached I think the the age of 60 and the Japanese factories force everyone to retire at 60 um, and about two weeks later he was back working for uh, working for Dorna um, uh, uh, helping out with their Asia talent stuff you know he just he, he loved that I was told also once by uh, someone who has uh, uh, spoken to well, who knows Carmelo Espelata quite well? Uh, that they, when they were um, negotiating about the about the CRT teams and about spec electronics and all the rest of it, uh, Nakamoto or Espelata used to say to Nakamoto because Nakamoto Honda would always threaten to withdraw if they didn't get their way, and Nakamoto would uh, or Espelata would tell Nakamoto, so well. You know, if you pull out, where are you going to be sort of, you know, summer next year? I'll be at a racetrack and you'll be sitting at home watching it on the TV or playing golf. I, uh, I can't believe that. So it was, uh, it, it was, um, it sort of, uh, it, it got used against him. And I think, you know, th- this is a very, very common pattern. You see, if you look at the number of X racers still in the paddock, it's just, uh, it's just there. So it's, a, it's an addictive place and you have all of your friends there. And especially now, as you say, uh, Steve, with, uh, with the VR46 Academy, all these young riders, they, uh, uh, you know, he, he becomes quite friendly with those 
riders as well and he wants to follow their career and all the rest of it so going off and doing something else would mean he would lose that sort of contact as well that's uh, going to be one of the things that will give him that draw just to stay but we should get our answers relatively soon on that early in the season Rossi said that if he's competitive in the opening five or six rounds that'll make up his mind and uh, that really is one of the the key things that we're going to see and we're not too far away David from the start of those Sepang tests as well they do tend to to creep up on you very quickly and that's where we get to see if this work that Yamaha did over the course of the Valencia test and their private test if they start to pay off, they'll obviously play a big role in what Rossi decides to do. But one thing that, uh, just to finish up on, David, that uh, will probably also play a big role through next season is that we did see the Grand Prix Commission meet this week and uh, there were a few announcements made. KTM showing their investment for next year with at least five wild cards for Mika Calio and potentially a sixth. That was also, um, that was one of the conditions for Calio for him signing back up again. Because Calio wants to be racing, you know, he said all through uh, through the season though, but that he, he wants to be racing. But he hasn't been able to manage it yet. He couldn't find anyone to sign him. And maybe that changes at the end of the next year with everyone's contracts coming up. But yeah, the reason they got to keep him, they, they got to keep Calio was because they could offer him five wildcards. Also, they, oh, they, they found themselves in a, in a, in a little bit of a complicated situation with, um, uh, Suzuki because Suzuki got their concessions back after not scoring a single podium this year. But the concessions mean they could also have six wildcards if they, if they wanted. And if they did then score enough podiums, uh, six concession points, which is basically, you know, two wins or a, a win and a second and a third. Then they would lose the the ability to do these wildcards. The same for the same for KTM. You know, KTM have planned all these wildcards, and if they suddenly uh, you know end up on the uh, on the podium a few times, then they would lose their planned uh, wildcards, and but that would um, that that would lead to a very upset Mika Calio, I think, and also just make it very difficult to, for uh, for planning. So there was a few sort of you know little tweaks and bits and pieces there, which was which was interesting for Suzuki. With uh, Sylvain Gantoli still hasn't been announced as their official test rider for next season again, but uh, it looks like he'll be in that role once again and uh, also have it where, again, as you said, potentially some more wild cards for him through the season. He still hasn't confirmed where he'll be racing next year, if he'll be racing. So those wild cards really could be an important bargaining chip. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think um, uh, I think also because well, you will know uh, better than me, but I think uh, Sylvain was also talking to, and as long as they were fine with him still uh, being a test rider for Suzuki, then um, uh, he would race for them. I'm not sure he has. Uh, I don't think he has a, a situation for next year, but um, uh, or or you know a race seat for next year. But uh, yeah, I mean this this is definitely a chance for Quintoli if he can get a couple of wild cards and actually do uh, do reasonably well on the bike, then that's. Uh, then that's a big step for him and I think also um it's it's good to have someone who was competitive who's someone who is fast because you know he was he was pretty good uh when he replaced Rintz at uh, I think Barcelona and Mugello uh he was there or thereabouts so he's certainly capable of of providing the, the the feedback and he's got lots and lots of experience on lots of different kinds of bikes the one thing that we've seen the last few years really with the the introduction by Ducati of Michele Piero, it really was a case of using their test riders to actually be, you know, for one thing, race sharp. We see Piero racing a lot in the Italian championship still. And uh, just to have it where they're able to get close to the level 
of what the factory riders can do. Yeah, I mean that's that is again. I think that's a, that's a good point um, uh, that you make there, Steve. That one of the reasons that you do um, uh, that you have your riders doing your test riders doing wild cards is just to keep them sharp. It's just to keep them sort of you know sharp and competitive and make them quick enough. Um, uh, even when they're out testing, for them to actually be doing uh, uh, be be capable of, of pushing the bike sufficiently to find where where the real limit is rather than where their own limit is uh, which is uh, there was a lot of discussion over the uh, uh, well it's it sort of in the last few uh, months of the season about uh, possibly Yamaha and maybe Honda going to uh, starting their own European test teams uh, both Yamaha and um, and Honda have said they won't do it just because it would cost them too much money to actually uh, uh, to actually do it um, but it does put them at a, a disadvantage because they their test riders are not as you know they're not as fast as Piro you you see it when they race they're not as fast as Piro they're not as fast as Calio they're clearly you know a second half or, or maybe two seconds off the pace and that makes it much more difficult for them to actually uh get those those last little tiny details out of the bike which the which only a really race uh, a rider capable of riding at race pace is is capable of finding the test rider might have to find the limits but uh, we have to find the limits as well and uh, just looking at this winter testing show that we've really covered most of the the big ground from the last couple of weeks from uh, winter testing but uh, anything just to to leave us on from your perspective <coughs> Should have asked me that earlier, Steve. I haven't got a clue. Nah. No. <laughs> uh, any thoughts? No. It, it just that um, it next year it's going to be interesting. Going back to Valentino Rossi's um, uh, whether Valentino Rossi uh, will retire or not, I think you we I think we'll know. Uh, we will have a clue at the uh, Sepang test if if uh, Rossi is close enough at the Sepang tests. Or close enough to Vinales, at least uh, um, uh, at the Sepang test, and then he's going to be signing on for another year because it means he's going to be competitive. Um, uh, obviously, the, the one thing, one big rumor we heard at, at the Valencia test was that uh, KTM were very interested in, uh, in in signing Jean Zarco. So I think maybe in Sepang we'll get a little bit more of an idea of you know what Zarco's future is going to be. Zarco is basically he's stuck in. Um, He's stuck at Yamaha. He can't go anywhere. He can't go uh, to the factory team until Rossi retires or Vinales decides to go elsewhere. Uh, for Yamaha, you know, Rossi's too big a name to be uh, pushing aside. And he's too competitive still to be pushing aside. And Vinales is their rider for the, for the future. Um, so there's, you know, there's, there's no way a seat opens up there. So if, if Sarko wants a factory rider, he has to go, he has to switch factory. I think also Suzuki are going to be very interested in, um, uh, in Zarco as well, so it's going to be interesting to see which way uh, Zarco decides to go, and it'll be fantastic to see him on another on another bike. Rider market really has already started churning for next year, as you said, David. Everyone pretty much out of contract across MotoGP, World Superbikes, and uh, we should see a lot of action pretty early in the season, just in terms of who goes where. But uh, thanks for joining us, David, on this winter test special of the Paddock Pass podcast. And uh, looking forward to seeing what you have to say from Barcelona next week. Yes, indeed. Uh, thank you very much for hosting. And, oh, remember to follow us, people. Remember to follow us on um, uh, on the Twitters at Paddock Pass Pod, uh, Facebook, uh, facebook.com Paddock Pass Podcast. Uh, and leave us a rating and leave us a review on your or on the iTunes and stuff because we deserve it.
Nicely wrapped up there, David, and uh, with the winter starting to set in here in Ireland and uh, the, su- the sun being replaced by the snow, I'm going to have to wrap myself up pretty warm before going <laughs> down to Barcelona. But uh, thanks for joining us again, David. Okay, and thank you, Steve. And thanks, everyone, for listening to this show. I struggled horrendously whenever I was trying to say Paddock Pass podcast in my interview with uh, J.R., so uh, whenever you listen to that show, you'll just hear That's all right. Ah, uh, it's grand. Right, so we'll get started, Dave.